I think one of the most fascinating things that God created was light. Not talking about the sun, but light itself. Light, as we know today, a little more scientifically, is just electromagnetic radiation. And in reality, only a very small percentage of it is actually visible to our eyes. The rest is hidden from us. But bouncing all around us are radio waves and infrared waves and ultraviolet waves and even some microwaves, hopefully not X-ray waves or gamma ray waves because then we'd be dead. But all these waves are just light waves, different frequency, different wavelength. All light travels at the same speed too. And that would be 299 million meters per second or 186,000 miles per second. That's, that means the light reflected off the moon takes just about one second to get to Earth, whereas it took Apollo 11 three days to make that same journey. That's so fast we can't even comprehend it. What's also profound about light is that it has a dual nature. It gets a little technical, but light exists as both a particle and a wave, something that is seemingly contradictory. We, we'd expect light to be either a stream of particles or a steady, continuous wave, but it's actually both. And I I tend to think that's a fingerprint of God left behind, testifying of his own dual nature of being one and three at the same time. Anyway, we know light was God's design. Genesis 3.3, God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. And here we see that age-old contrast between the light and the dark. You might expect darkness to be the exact opposite of light, but actually that's not the case. Darkness doesn't actually exist. Darkness is not a thing. Darkness is not a wave or a particle or anything. Rather, darkness is merely how we describe the absence of light. Darkness has no source. It doesn't come from anywhere. It doesn't go anywhere. You can't get rid of darkness. All you can hope to do is replace it with the light. So in that regard, it should be obvious that the light is superior to the darkness It takes just the smallest amount of light to penetrate the darkness and cause it to flee. You can think of one match lighting up a huge cavern. In fact, the deeper the darkness, the more the light can shine and manifest its glory and its power. Anyway, light and darkness, they're absolute fundamental realities to our lives, our existence. So it's no wonder that light and darkness have come to take on a symbolic meaning, representing good and evil, truth and error, even God and Satan. The Bible uses this imagery all the time. For example, 1 Timothy 6.16 says that God dwells in unapproachable light, whereas the realm of Satan is known as the domain of darkness. It's no minor subject in scripture. You could spend a long time studying all the references where light and dark are used to teach some spiritual truth. But there is one verse in particular that merits our attention this morning. It's not so clear cut. It's found in Mark chapter 15. You can take your Bibles and open there now to Mark 15. We're looking at just one verse this morning, but it's a strange verse that has prompted many opinions and interpretations. If you read Mark 15 too quickly, you could almost pass right over it and not give it a second thought. But when you stop and think about it, it proves to be quite challenging to discern what's going on here. This is one of those verses you read and you just know it's significant, but you're not quite sure how it's significant. The verse I'm talking about is Mark 15, verse 33. More specifically, the sudden presence of this darkness in the middle of the day around the cross. 
as Jesus is hanging there. This fact is recorded in only one verse, in Mark at least, Mark 15:33. It says this, When the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. This verse relates to one of the many phenomena that occurred while Jesus was on the cross. You might recall that when he died, there was an earthquake, and then the veil of the temple tore in two. These were events not taking place on the cross, but spiritually and theologically, they were clearly connected to the cross, to Jesus dying on the cross. And it stands to reason that the same thing is going on with this phenomenon of the darkness while he's on the cross. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this detail, and they connect it to the time right before Jesus died. So something's going on. But the question is, what is the connection between this darkness and the cross? What is the relation between this sudden darkness in the middle of the day and what Jesus is doing on the cross? It's clear this was a real physical phenomena. But what, what is the spiritual significance behind it? This morning we aim to find out. We're back in Mark 15 this week. We've been going through Mark's gospel at a steady pace. But here at the end we found ourselves slowing down because there's so much more to see. It's like an amusement park ride. They always slow down when there's more they want you to see. And Mark, in his gospel, when he gets to the cross, he slows things down and, and so have we. Spending a lot of time trying to uncover every stone and just take in everything that's going on while Jesus is on the cross. We've already spent three weeks covering just the first three hours of Jesus on the cross. There we viewed him as the Lamb of God, as the fulfillment of God's prophetic plan of redemption, and as the promised deliverer who would lift the curse from us of death. Now we come upon the second three hours of Jesus on the cross. But before we get too far into that, we've got to grapple with verse 33 and this darkness because this darkness actually shades the entire second half of christ on the cross it is the second half three hours of darkness not not much else, not much else happens in fact jesus does all of his talking and ministering during the first three hours on the cross and then right at his death but during the three hours of darkness he's completely silent doesn't say anything doesn't do anything Nothing else seems to happen. He hangs there in complete silence as the darkness hangs overhead. So like I said before, it's not hard to gather that something spiritually significant is taking place in connection with this darkness, but the question is what? It's such a defining characteristic of Christ's time on the cross that it, it's worth our time and attention. We need to figure this one out. So we'll save what happens next after the darkness for next week. But our goal this morning is to try and uncover the meaning and the purpose behind this midday darkness, discerning how it bears on the work Jesus was accomplishing on the cross. And to do this, we'll, we'll go back to some good old-fashioned Bible study this morning with the intent, as always, of giving you a greater understanding and appreciation of what was taking place on the cross so that you, in turn, might live more faithfully and truthfully for the one who was dying there for you on the cross. So that's where we're headed today. Let's let's just get started. When it comes to some good old-fashioned Bible study, a good place to start is with some plain old observation. 
So let's look at the text again and the context and just see what we can learn about this darkness. Not a lot is said about the darkness. Again, it only shows up in one verse. So again, verse 33, it says, When the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. First thing you'll notice about this darkness is that it lasted three hours. All the Gospels clearly state that Christ's time on the cross was split up into two three-hour time periods. We've already seen Jesus hang on the cross for three hours, from 9 a.m. to noon. And this verse, verse 33, is introducing us to the second three hours of him on the cross, from noon to 3 p.m. But this second half is different. It has a a clearly unique character to it, obviously governed by this darkness. Now let's briefly recap what happened before these three hours of darkness on the cross. During the first three hours, Jesus was, of course, suffering, but he did some ministry. He, He was speaking, talking to people. It was during the first three hours when Jesus said of the soldiers, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It's when Jesus said of the thief on the cross, Today you will be with me in paradise. It's when Jesus said to John, he said, Behold, your mother in regards to Mary, his mother, who is standing there watching him die on the cross. So all that stuff, it all takes place during the first three hours. But then this darkness comes, and Jesus goes silent. Doesn't say anything throughout the rest of the three hours. Everyone else appears to be silent too. All the record of the soldiers and the travelers and the priests hurling abuses at Jesus while he's on the cross, all that stuff is also contained in the first three hours. The second three hours, nothing else happens. That's recorded at least. Also notice there's a definite ending to the darkness. It starts at the sixth hour, which back then for the Jews was noon, and it ends the ninth hour, 3 p.m. Notice it, it, was, it says the darkness came until the ninth hour. So it lifts upon the ninth hour. It appears the darkness actually lifts right before Jesus dies. He dies at 3 p.m. It appears it lifts right before he dies. But Jesus died promptly thereafter. Specifically, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all connect the ending of this darkness to what's known as the cry of dereliction or the cry of the damned where Jesus says in the cross, his near final words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That, that phrase right there may be the most profound and mysterious statement in all of scripture. And we'll get to it next week. But for now, merely notice Jesus says that after the darkness, only after the time of the darkness. John, in his gospel, he also tells us this about after that time period, John 19, 28, says, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill scripture, said, I am thirsty. It takes place right at the moment of his death on the cross. And so by the time he died, what John is saying is, whatever Jesus was doing on the cross, it had been accomplished. It was mission accomplished. By the time the darkness lifted, his mission was done. It's finished. And so it's no wonder right after that, what does Jesus say? It is finished. His work is done. But again, the only point I'm making here is, notice, all that takes place only after the time of the darkness. Not before, not during, but after this time period of darkness. Only then does Jesus breathe his last and die. 
Now, at the moment of his death, like we said, though, other things took place. This earthquake, the veil of the temple tearing in two, and some other things. These were various supernatural phenomena given by God to indicate what the death of Jesus was accomplishing, namely opening up the way to God. So it stands to reason that this darkness before his death was another supernatural phenomenon given by God to indicate more of what Jesus was doing on that cross and how he was accomplishing that mission on the cross. That's a thought we'll come back to later. For now, a few more observations are in order. Here we go, verse 33 again. How extensive was this darkness? Verse 33 simply says it fell, it covered the whole land. The whole land. The word for land can refer to the entire earth or just a local region. And so nothing more is said. There's really no way of telling the difference here. Most likely, though, since this darkness concerned Jesus on the cross, the darkness fell over the area of the cross. Jerusalem, perhaps Judea. But scripture doesn't really say, so we don't know for sure. Also, scripture doesn't quite tell us by what means the darkness came. Like, How did it get dark at noon? Luke is the only one who comments here, and all he says is that the sun failed. It's not really clear what that means, though. We can for sure rule out one option, namely that this was an eclipse. This was not an eclipse. Jesus died on the eve of Passover, which always takes place during a full moon. But a solar eclipse, which is where the the moon blocks the sun and makes it dark on earth, that only takes place during a new moon. And furthermore, eclipses only last for a few minutes. It can't account for three hours of darkness over the land. So eclipses are definitely out. You may have heard that before, but it's definitely out. We still wonder, though, okay, how did this darkness come about? Did God literally just, you know, turn off the sun for three hours? We don't doubt his power to do that, causing it to be dark over the whole earth. But if that really happened, we would expect to see a scene of just great panic around the area. But we we don't really see that. There's really no panic associated. And so I think it's more likely that this darkness was brought about by a thick, dense cloud cover over the area, effectively blotting out the sun for three three hours. I still believe this was a supernatural darkness, but sometimes God uses natural means to accomplish his desired end. I recently saw some video of this massive out-of-control fire in Canada. Probably heard about it. It was dash cam footage of a car trying to escape the flames. Their neighborhood was being engulfed by the fire, so they're trying to escape. And I was watching the video. I thought it was taking place during nighttime. But then the car finally escaped the flames and got out of the smoke, and it turns out it was like the middle of the day. And the smoke was so oppressive, it, it basically turned the day into night. It made it appear like it was nighttime. The same thing can happen with thick, dark clouds in a storm. And that's my bet on what's going on here. Okay, these are a few observations you can make of the text. It doesn't say much, though. Nothing really more is said, and observations only take us so far. The fact of the matter is, none of the Gospels actually outright tell us the significance of this darkness. So we are left to do the work, not merely of observation, but also of interpretation. Whatever this darkness is, it's something the gospel writers believed would be apparent to those with spiritual discernment. 
Now, a good place to start in this regard when you're moving from observation to interpretation is to rule out a few options. And I think one option we can safely rule, rule out here as to what this darkness means, one option we can rule out is Satan. Some believe that this darkness in Mark 15 is a representation of the satanic oppression Jesus experienced on the cross. Satan and demons, after all, where do they dwell? In the domain of darkness. So, okay, that seems to fit, right? Well, there certainly was a spiritual warfare dimension to the events of the cross, for sure. I mean, we've already studied how it was Satan who entered Judas right before Judas handed him over to death, or turned him over for death. Likewise, Satan used the drama of the cross to tempt Peter and to sift his faith. So look, we don't doubt that a real spiritual warfare dimension was taking place around all the events of the cross, for sure. However, although Satan may be the prince of spiritual darkness, he's not omnipotent like God, and he doesn't have power over creation to cause a literal darkness over the land. That power belongs to God alone, according to Scripture. Remember, we're not talking about metaphorical darkness here. We're talking about an actual, literal darkness over the land. Morally, spiritually, yes, darkness represents Satan and evil in the Bible. Morally, spiritually, that's not God. But this was a phenomenon of actual darkness in the sky, and and that's something that's actually more associated with God himself. And furthermore, there's, there's zero in the context even hinting that Satan and demons are involved in this darkness. So I think it's pretty safe to rule that out here. We're still left wondering, though, what does this darkness signify? And we're, like I said, we're approaching this in a Bible study format this morning. And instead of just taking a stab in the dark, the key, when you, when you come to passages like this, the key to interpreting these things is, is looking for little clues in the context while resting on an Old Testament foundation. So you start in the context, one big clue is that whatever this darkness is, it has to do with something between God the Father and God the Son. The three synoptic gospels all connect the cry of Jesus on the cross to the end of this darkness. On the cross, after the darkness, Jesus doesn't cry out to Satan. He doesn't curse Satan for afflicting him. Rather, he cries out, to God himself. It seems to be a clue that whatever this darkness is, it's relating to God the Father. Additionally, the cry of Jesus is one of being forsaken by God. Whatever that means, we'll we'll save till next week, but at the very least, there's some negative relation going on here between God the Father and God the Son. Something negative was happening between the Father and the Son in that darkness. That's what we're led to believe. Context doesn't say much, but by the little we have to go by, it seems to indicate this darkness relates to God the Father. Okay, how does it relate to God the Father? Well, some people take the the concepts of light and darkness, and they run with it, and so they reason, well, since darkness is merely the absence of light, therefore this darkness on the cross... It must mean the absence of God. This is God the Father when he turns his face away from his son because he cannot bear looking upon sin. This is the Father 
abandoning his son on the cross, which is why Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The darkness represents the father's separation from the son. You may have heard something like this before, but this is a case of being close, but no cigar, stemming from a misunderstanding of the wrath of God and the relationship between God the father and God the son. You know, the Bible actually never says that the father turned his face away from the son. That comes from a song, not the scriptures. Also, it's not true that the father and the son were separated on the cross in their natures and their relationship. That's not true. The divine nature of Jesus did not cease to exist on the cross and was never separated from the father in regards to the Trinity. The son did, however, move under the father's wrath something he had never known before. The son had only ever known the father's love, but now he was tasting the father's full wrath. Only in this regard could we say that the son temporarily was separated from the father's loving kindness. But even this does not involve the father's absence. God's judgment, God's wrath being poured out, does not relate to his absence, but to his presence. God is everywhere present, including hell. God is present in hell. Rather, hell is a place where God is present in his wrath only to curse, not to bless. That's what makes hell so terrifying. It's not just the place of where God doesn't exist and there's the absence of God and his glory. It's worse than that. It's the presence of God in anger, a just, righteous wrath, and he's only there to curse, not to bless. Whenever God pours out his wrath, he is very much present. So it is wrong to think of the darkness around the cross as indicating the absence of God. But this is where that Old Testament foundation comes into play. You might be surprised by this, but in the Old Testament, darkness was often used to represent not God's absence, but God's presence. Now, it's still true. Yes, okay, we know God is associated with the light. First John 1, 5, God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all. That's still true. And that's a, a powerful metaphor teaching God's absolute holiness and truthfulness. But again, remember, we're not talking about here metaphorical light and darkness. We're talking about actual darkness that covers the land. And in that regard, God's presence is quite often associated with this actual darkness coming upon the land. For example, in Psalm 18, David describes God coming down to deliver him from his enemies. And there, how does David describe God's presence as he comes? Psalm 18, verse 9 David says of God, he bowed the heavens also and came down with thick darkness under his feet. Verse 11, he made darkness his hiding place, his canopy around him, darkness of waters, thick clouds of the skies. From the brightness before him, he passed his thick clouds. These verses picture God coming down to deliver his people, but God's presence is somehow veiled shrouded by this cloud of thick darkness. God is not darkness, 
No, but he can use darkness to surround himself. In fact, that's what Psalm 97 verse 2 says. It says of God, clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. You see, look, God is not morally dark. He's still righteous. He's still just. But in some way, God uses thick, dark clouds to surround his presence before his people. You know, I think what these Psalms are going off of is, is God's special presence in the Old Testament. You remember a few times in Israel's history, God manifested himself to the people. And when God did so, how did he choose to manifest his presence among them? Well, most often God used a thick, dark cloud, like when the cloud filled the temple on Solomon's dedication. Now, don't think about some white, puffy, cumulus cloud. The picture is more of this oppressive, dark cloud, like smoke, more like smoke. God's presence was shrouded by darkness, and he appeared like this before Israel several times. So the point is this, darkness actually can be associated with God. Not morally, we're not talking about in the sense of God being evil, but in the sense of his presence. God, in the past, he's used literal darkness through a thick cloud to represent his special presence. He's coming down. Now, quick side note, most likely, this thick cloud of darkness was used by God to conceal his greater glory, which no man can see and live. That's my two cents, at least. All right, so we have a little bit of the context of Mark 15, plus some of that foundation from the Old Testament. And that leads us to believe this darkness around the cross. It doesn't relate to Satan, but to God the Father. And it does not relate to God the Father's absence, but to the Father's presence. This is God showing up at the cross. His presence is being manifested in some way through this oppressive oppressive darkness that covers the land. Now, if this is true, this begs a couple questions, namely, why? Why would God show up in darkness around the cross? Well, going back to that Old Testament foundation, why has God shown up in the darkness before? Darkness comes upon the land. God is there. Why? Why did he do it? Well, there's two reasons. To bless and to judge. To bless and to judge. And I believe that the darkness around the cross signifies that both of these are coming into play. I believe that the supernatural darkness during the final three hours of the cross, it is God the Father manifesting his presence before the Son, both to bless and to judge. Now, let me explain why I believe these are the two right connections to make between the darkness and the cross. And that's our whole question this morning, right? What is the connection between the darkness and the cross? I believe it's the Father showing up to bless and to judge. Here's connection number one. The darkness represents God the Father showing up at the cross to bless by ratifying the new covenant. The darkness represents God the Father showing up at the cross to bless by ratifying the new covenant. Now, why would I say that? Where is that coming from? 
Well, this is what God has done before at huge moments in redemptive history. First, think back to the Abrahamic covenant. That's the the foundational covenant of the whole Bible, of the Old Testament, of salvation. God's promise to Abraham to bless him and to bless all of his descendants. As we studied last week, actually, it was, it was to be through the seed of Abraham that all the nations will be blessed. And we know that speaking of Christ and us. We are his spiritual descendants. Well, later in Genesis 15, God affirmed and formally ratified this covenant with Abraham. And he did so in a very unique way. Abraham showed up and God had Abraham prepare these sacrifices and he took these animals and he cut them in two and split them apart. But then God put Abraham to sleep on purpose. God wanted to show that this covenant was going to be a unilateral, unconditional covenant. As God was making it, God was going to fulfill it. It was based on God's faithfulness, not Abraham's faithfulness. So Abraham's put to sleep and then God shows up to ratify this covenant, but his presence is manifested in a very unique way. Genesis 15:12 says, Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abraham, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. Literally, it says terror, even great darkness. In other words, the terror was the great darkness that fell upon him. And it was in this darkness that God himself shows up to ratify the covenant by walking through the pieces of the sacrifice and so forth. Ratify this covenant to bless Abraham and his descendants. He was there to bless. Now God, he could have shown up in light, I guess, if he wanted to, but he chose to show up in this darkness, this terrifying darkness. Again, probably because he was shielding his greater glory. Now something very similar to this happens again. This time when? When God is ratifying the Mosaic Covenant. This is another massive promise God made, this time to the nation of Israel, to bless them. God shows up to bless them. Yet when God showed up to bless them on Mount Sinai, how did God once again manifest his presence there before them? It was not in light, but in the darkness Exodus chapters 19 and 20 describe the scene. Mount Sinai, all the people of Israel are there before Mount Sinai. The whole mountain, it's erupting in flame and smoke. Thunder is crashing. The ground is shaking. It's a terrifying scene. And the top of the mountain, though, it's covered in this thick, dark cloud that no one can see through. And then Exodus 19.20 says, The Lord himself came down on Mount Sinai, where? to the top of the mountain. He dwelt in the darkness. And he warned the people, don't break through and gaze upon the Lord or else you will die. But he did call Moses up into the cloud. Exodus 20, 21 says, so the people stood at a distance while Moses approached the thick cloud where God was. God was dwelling in that dark cloud atop the mountain. And there from the mountain, God affirmed his covenant with Israel. He ratified the covenant, Exodus 24, as they prepared the sacrifice again with sacrifice. He ratifies his covenant to bless them. He would be their God. They would be his people. And he would bless them if they would obey his word. 
Later on, Moses recalled this event in Deuteronomy, and he encouraged the people to remember the voice, because they saw no form. But he says, remember the voice which you heard on the mountain from where? He says, from the midst of the darkness, Deuteronomy 5.23. So the picture, again, it's all of Israel. They're assembled at the foot of Mount Sinai. The whole mountain, it's bursting in flame like the burning bush, except now it's the whole mountain. Yet on top, this thick cloud of darkness prevails, and from it comes the voice of God, and all the people realize this is God. He's there. His presence is there in the darkness, and he's speaking to us. And this time, God has shown up, once again, to bless. He's there, although it's terrifying, he's there to bless his people by ratifying this covenant with them as a nation. So it's because of this that I at least believe and don't find it hard to to believe that this is what God is doing once more on the cross. His presence is manifested in this oppressive darkness that is blotting out the sun, turning day into night. And God comes near the cross first to bless his people. Again, how? This time by ratifying a new covenant. A new covenant. And isn't that what God and Christ were doing on the cross. Indeed, was not Jesus inaugurating a new covenant with his blood on that cross? Did he not say the night before during Passover, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood? In reference to what he would do on the cross. This is what Jesus was doing on the cross one way or another, giving his blood as the sacrifice of the new covenant through which we can be made clean And that new covenant, that's the basis for our salvation. The old covenant, which God made with Israel, was intended to bless them if they would just obey. The problem with that is that they couldn't. Nobody can. Because we have hearts of stone given over to sin and rebellion by nature. But God made a promise of this new covenant that he would bring about, where he would finally truly bless his people by actually transforming their hearts and bringing them to to spiritual life before him. For example, Ezekiel 36, verses 25 through 27, God tells of this future new covenant promise. He says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean, and I'll cleanse you from all your filthiness, from all your idols. Moreover, I'll give you a new heart, and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. And there's other passages that speak of this new covenant promise. But like all covenants, this one had to be signed and sealed by blood through a sacrifice. And this perfect and lasting covenant required a perfect and lasting Sacrifice, and that's why Jesus gave himself. This is what Jesus was doing on the cross. He was inaugurating this new covenant in his blood by his sacrificial death. And this is what God the Father was doing on the cross. God showed up once again to bless his people in the darkness by ratifying this new covenant. 
God was enacting his promise of forgiveness and new life through the sacrifice. Only this time he was sacrificing his own son. But that's not all. This new covenant God promises comes with forgiveness of sins, but that's not free. Someone must pay for those sins. And so this leads to connection number two. First, God showing up to bless. Secondly, the darkness represents God the Father showing up at the cross to judge by pouring out his wrath on Jesus as the new Passover lamb. I know that's a mouthful, but I believe the darkness also indicates God's presence on the cross where he's present to bless and to judge that both of these come together on Christ. And so connection number two, the darkness represents God the Father showing up at the cross to judge by pouring out his wrath on Jesus as the new Passover lamb. In the Old Testament, darkness over the land is actually a very common picture of God showing up to judge, a picture of God's judgment. When his wrath comes on the nations, it comes with deep darkness. For example, when God warned Israel of their captivity, he said he would bring upon their land darkness. When he judged Egypt and Ezekiel 32, he said he would cover the sun with a cloud and set darkness on their land. And then, of course, you have that future day of the Lord, the day of God's wrath. And in that day, what will happen? The sun will be darkened. It will be a a day of darkness, a day of clouds, thick darkness, Zephaniah 115. This is actually the dominant association of darkness on the land in the Old Testament. You know, a few times God shows up in the darkness to bless, but mostly when God brings darkness over the land, it's a sign that he's showing up to judge, to make his wrath against sin known. Now, when it comes to Jesus on the cross in that darkness, I think it gets even more specific than God just showing up to judge because the darkness around the cross, it's eerily reminiscent of another time when God sent darkness as a judgment. Now, that would be during Israel's exodus. I'm sure you guys remember this. God was set on delivering Israel from slavery to Egypt, but Pharaoh wouldn't let the people go. So God sent 10 plagues on their land as signs of his judgment. And you remember the tenth and final plague, the death of the firstborn? In all the land of Egypt, the firstborn of every family would die as part of God's judgment on the land. And that plague, that that would befall Israel too. But God made a provision to deliver them. God said he would pass over their sins if they would sacrifice a lamb and put its blood on their doorposts. Thus, they were delivered from the wrath of God by the blood of the lamb. That was the 10th and final plague, which finally convinced Pharaoh to let the people go, as you remember. But do you remember the ninth plague? The judgment God sent right before the death of the firstborn. It was darkness. The ninth plague was darkness over the whole land. God sent a thick, oppressive darkness over all the land of Egypt as his near final judgment on them. This judgment is actually so terrifying, Pharaoh almost let him go. But it would not be until the death of the firstborn that God's judgments were complete and that God's redemption was complete 
And he was doing both, judging and redeeming at the same time. And that's precisely what's happening on the cross. And this is an intentional parallel that you are not meant to miss in God's plan of redemption. It's well attested throughout the New Testament and even foreseen in the Old Testament that the Messiah would bring about a second exodus. Not from slavery to Egypt or slavery to Rome, but slavery to sin. The Messiah would bring about deliverance from death itself. God would redeem his power, his people, from the power of sin. And he would lead them out to a new promised land, an eternal heavenly promised land. Such a redemption, though, again, it's not free, it's costly. And this time, in order to redeem man, not just from slavery to Egypt, but from slavery to death, a better sacrifice was needed. And so this time, though, the only difference was God provided his own firstborn to be the sacrifice. This time, the only firstborn that died was Christ, the Lamb of God, who died in our place, that God might pass over our sins once and for all. This is why 1 Corinthians 5, 7 speaks of Jesus as our Passover who was sacrificed. By virtue of his blood shed on the cross, we can be forgiven, truly redeemed, and granted passageway to eternal life. And just a few weeks ago, we did a whole sermon establishing Jesus as the Lamb of God, you might remember. It's no coincidence that Jesus died 3 p.m., that's the exact moment they would have started to sacrifice Passover lambs in the temple in Jerusalem on that day. This is also why Jesus, in connection with his death, he redefined that Passover meal and he established a new meal in regards to a new covenant, which we call the Lord's Supper. See how this comes together, this new Passover, the new covenant. It's because in him, in his death on that cross, God's blessing and God's judgment were coming together. God's new covenant blessing would come to us only because his judgment first came to Jesus on the cross. So this explains, I believe, the nature and the significance of the darkness that descends upon the cross. As the darkness came at noon, swallowing up the land in dark gloom, This was not God abandoning his son on the cross. This was God the Father showing up. Much like at his baptism. Much like at the transfiguration. Only this time, God was showing up not to bless his son, but to judge his son. To sacrifice his son as an offering for sin to accomplish a spiritual exodus. Like Isaiah 53.10 says of Jesus, The Lord was pleased, not to bless him, but to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. You know, as Jesus cried out on the cross, the bystanders, they thought, you know, if he really is the Messiah, well, then Elijah will come and save him, or God himself will come and take him off the cross. And when Jesus cried out, and when God finally showed up, It wasn't to deliver him, but precisely because he was the Messiah, it was to sacrifice him, to judge him, that he might bless us. And Jesus willingly took the cup of wrath from the Father's hand and drank it down 
for us. When you understand this background, which is really brought to the foreground by the darkness, really gives you an idea of what Jesus was going through through those three hours of darkness. He was drinking down the cup of God's wrath. In the darkness, Jesus was experiencing the place of outer darkness, the place of God's wrath. And this also starts to explain why at the end of the darkness, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Only now actually are we ready to grapple with that statement, that mystery. But that is something we'll do next time. This is as far as we'll take our study for now. All that's left to do this morning is ask one last question of what we've learned about the darkness and the cross. Namely, well, so what? What now? It's not enough. You do Bible study to just observe and interpret. You have to apply. You have to personalize this. What does this mean now and apply for your life? It's not hard to do, but you must make sure you do. And as we reflect on the significance of the darkness and the cross, what it meant for Jesus, what it means for us, it calls on us to respond. Think about what you deserve before a holy God. Pretty much the exact opposite of what came with the darkness. We deserve God's judgment. Jesus deserves God's blessing. Yet in the darkness, God sent his judgment on Jesus so that we might inherit his blessing. It's not fair. When you think about it, it's not fair. But thank God for not dealing fairly with us, but graciously and mercifully. This is his grace and mercy. And this is why we say we are saved by his grace, because we didn't deserve this. And if you look upon Jesus as your Lord and your Savior by faith, then you will receive his grace as well. Also, think about the application to the first exodus. When God came down to bless, to deliver his people from Egypt by his grace, that deliverance demanded a response from them. And even more so for us, we have a better covenant, a better sacrifice. And what God wanted from them is still what he wants from you today. Only now we're actually enabled to respond. And what does God want from his people? For you to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. God loved you first. He gave his firstborn into the darkness for you in love. And as you now meditate on the cross and you look upon Jesus as your Lamb of God who entered that darkness for you, that should ignite your heart and its passion and love for God who did this for you. Also, God wants you to obey him, to walk in his ways, to listen to his voice. His ways are good. They always have been, only now we can see that and we can actually obey. And again, as you reflect on the cross and the darkness Jesus faced on your behalf, you should mourn over your sin, which he dealt with there in the darkness. And though you should resolve to greater obedience, should spur us on to excel still more, 
thanking him, rejoicing in his victory, for we're free. But now how can I how can I just pursue him in obedience more? Some Christians are constantly trying to escape God's ways, find loopholes so they can keep their sin as their little pet. But doesn't the darkness and the cross show you what God thinks of sin and the penalty for sin? It's death. That should be your death. That should be your cup. That should be your darkness. But Jesus took that for you. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. So love God. Seek his ways. This is why he gave us his son. That he might finally cleanse us from all our sin. That we might then be with him again forever. And as we are made clean through the blood of Christ, through the new covenant, our new Passover lamb, we are indeed enabled to burst through the cloud, to go behind the veil into the very presence of God's light. That's what Jesus did for us. Jesus endured the darkness of God that we might bask in his light forevermore. This this just merits a life of praise, And thanksgiving for the God who did this for us. So think on this darkness that Jesus faced some more today. Recall the blessings that are yours because of the judgment that was his. And just offer your life, consecrate your life to him. The light of the world faced the darkness of God to make you into sons and daughters of the light. So let us walk now in the light. Let's pray. Our great God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of lights, and Christ, the light of the world. We thank you for this precious truth we learned this morning through studying your word, which is so rich and so powerful. We have no practical way to comprehend, really, what the Lord Jesus was enduring during those three hours of darkness, the wrath being poured out, the cup being drank down. We we cannot comprehend. Thankfully, we don't have to. We would have known in hell forever we would experience what Jesus experienced, but because of that death, we are free from ever having to know. This world now is the closest to hell we'll ever get. And we only know now forevermore that blessings of heaven will dwell in your light. All because of the Lamb. Lord God, we thank you for your plan and your sacrifice to give your only Son, your firstborn, to bless us with the covenant of life and by judging him, giving us his new life, his eternal life. Lord, these things we know. I mean, we've heard this before, but Let this penetrate our hearts. Let this be coal to the fire, igniting us more and more each and every day to remember you, to live for you, to strive for you, to love you, to obey you. You're our God. We want to delight in you and sing your praises every day. Just live for you. So we lift up our lives to you now, the God who saved us by giving us his son. Thank you, Lord. We praise your name. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.